Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, is often called the most successful military alliance in history. It was founded in 1949 to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. It has survived by being able to change. Its mission has expanded into far-flung crisis management from the Balkans to Afghanistan, and it will soon have 30 members encompassing nearly a billion people. But in the last few years, questions about NATO's purpose and power have been growing louder. From early on in his campaign, Donald Trump lambasted the organization. It's obsolete, and a lot of countries aren't paying us what they should be paying. And just weeks ago, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, offered a stark warning in an interview with The Economist. He said that NATO is experiencing brain death. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Daniel Franklin, the diplomatic editor. And as the transatlantic alliance prepares to complete celebrations of its 70th birthday with a summit in London, we're asking, what's the future of NATO? My guest is the current Secretary-General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg. Before his appointment in 2014, he served as Prime Minister of his native Norway for nine years and as the UN Special Envoy on Climate Change. Mr Stoltenberg, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much for having me. So President Macron did not hold back in his recent comments to us that NATO is experiencing brain death and its members need to take stock. Why do you think he said that and is he right? Well, I will go to Paris next week to meet uh, President Macron, and I intend to uh, to discuss this issue with him. Uh, what I can say today is that NATO is strong, NATO is agile, NATO is uh, vital for uh, for our shared security. And actually, NATO has, over the last years, implemented the largest reinforcement uh, of our collective defense in a generation with for the first time in our history, combat-ready troops in the eastern part of the alliance and also with European allies stepping up, investing more in defense. So so we can always discuss how we can further strengthen this alliance, but uh, NATO remains the strongest alliance in history and we remain the only platform that brings North America and Europe together to address uh, strategic issues uh, which are important for our shared security. You've obviously having to deal with the fallout of his statements. You, you're speaking to him, as you say, imminently. What's been the impact so far? Has it had a positive impact in stimulating debate or has it just widened cracks in within NATO? So I would say we had a very good discussion at the foreign ministerial meeting this week in Brussels. And the main message from all the ministers was that we need to strengthen NATO. In uncertain times, we need stronger multilateral institutions. At the meeting this week, we decided to make space a new operational domain alongside air, land, sea and cyber. We agreed a comprehensive report on China, reflecting that we are responding to a changing world. Of course, 
There are differences between 29 allies. We are 29 different countries from both sides of the Atlantic with different political parties in in government. And we see differences on issues like uh, trade, like like climate change, the Iran nuclear deal, and now most recently about the situation in northeast Syria. But we have seen differences before in NATO, and the strength of NATO is that we have always been able to deal with them, to overcome them, and then stand united around our courthouse to protect and defend each other. Well, let me probe on those differences a, a little bit. There seems to be a difference of emphasis, for example, between France and Germany, on what the future of NATO is. The German defence minister, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, has said that she thinks that Emmanuel Macron wants to replace NATO, whereas Germany wants to strengthen the European aspect of defence within NATO. Do you see that as a real difference in the heart of NATO between France and Germany? As I said, there are there are differences, and between 29 allies, there will also always be discussions. Back to the Suez crisis in 56, or when France left the military cooperation in 66, and, and NATO had to move its headquarters from Paris to Brussels, or the Turkish also incursion into Cyprus in 74, or the Iraq war in 2003. We have had serious disagreements between NATO allies before. But the strength is that we have been able to manage them and to maintain NATO as, as a strong political and military alliance. And I'm absolutely certain that we will be able to do that also uh, this time. I welcome efforts to strengthen European defence. We have asked for more European efforts on defence for many years. And then, of course, we cannot complain when Europeans are stepping up. But this has to be not an alternative to NATO, cannot replace NATO. It must uh, strengthen the European pillar within NATO. The European Union cannot defend Europe especially after Brexit, then 80% of NATO's defense expenditure will come from non-EU allies. So, uh, yes, it's good if we see more EU efforts on defense, but uh, that cannot replace NATO. I suppose one of the things that President Macron stresses is that he sees himself as an ultra-realist, that he's trying to actually face up to some facts. And he says, and I quote, strategically and politically, we need to recognize that we have a problem. So, is there a problem? Is he identifying a problem, even if you can have an argument over what the solution is? Well, uh, NATO can always improve, and no national institution will be perfect. That's not possible. But NATO is by far the most successful alliance in history, and we continue to be essential, vital for uh, the security for close to 1 billion people, and especially now when we see new threats, uh, new challenges, a more unpredictable world, a shifting balance of power, uh, the rise of China, a more assertive Russia, then it's even more important than, that we stand together. And I think European unity is extremely important, but European unity cannot replace transatlantic unity. We need both. And any attempt to increase the distance uh, between Europe and North America will weaken the transatlantic bond, but it will also divide Europe. So we need both. And I suppose the idea that there was a growing distance across the Atlantic or between the Atlantic allies, until recently, the impetus for that came not from President Macron, but from uh, President Trump. And I think to an extent, President Macron is responding to the challenge from President Trump, who is focused often on other things. So you've just returned from a trip to Washington. You have, I think, a good relationship with President Trump. You spoke to a joint session of 
Congress back in April where you had multiple standing ovations. What's your impression now of President Trump's attitude towards NATO? Has it changed? He said that uh, uh, I used to say that NATO was obsolete, but NATO is not longer obsolete. That was what he said at the first press conference we had back in April 2017. I feel that I have a good working relationship with him, but also with the United States and with the Congress, because it is a very strong bipartisan support in the United States for NATO. I met with the president, but also had many meetings in the Congress, and and it was a clear message from the United States that they continue to support NATO. And if you look at the opinion polls, there are record high support for NATO in the United States. And and this idea, which I see sometimes referred to that the US is leaving Europe, is just simply wrong. It's correct that uh, after the end of Cold War, the United States reduced its military presence in Europe. The last US battle tank left Europe in December 2013. Now the United States is back with a full armored brigade, uh, many, many battle tanks and uh, more troops, more exercises, more US investments in, in infrastructure, in pre-positioned equipment. And just in a few months, we'll have the biggest deployment of US-based forces, 20,000 US troops participating in a in a big exercise to defend the 2020. So I can hardly think about any stronger expression of uh, US commitment to NATO, to European uh, security, than the increased number of US troops in Europe. I understand all that, but the public is entitled to be a bit confused. On the ground, as you say, uh, more investment, more resources going into NATO, but then the public remarks from the president himself sometimes seem to tell a, a different story. And at the time of the actual anniversary, the 70th birthday of NATO, There was a foreign minister's meeting. Many people expected that that would be an occasion to have a, a summit of leaders. But the suspicion was that uh, there was a nervousness of having such a thing because of potential disruption from President Trump himself. Now he's coming to London. Do you no longer fear the disruptive element, the bolshy element at the summit from President Trump? President Trump has a different style than many other uh, political leaders, but we are 29 different nations. I'm in no way trying to deny that there are serious disagreements between allies on serious issues like climate change or trade or many other issues. The only thing I'm saying is that it is possible to maintain a strong security and defense cooperation despite these differences. We have proven that uh, over decades. Uh, the other thing I'm, I'm saying is that uh, I think the message from the United States, and this has been the message both from, uh, of course, President Trump, but also from President Obama, is that European allies have to spend more, have to invest more. It's unfair burden sharing in NATO. And the good thing is that not only uh, is this the message from the United States, but it's the message from all allies. So we agreed all allies are now investing more in defense. More allies meet the 2% guideline. And the majority of allies have put forward plans to spend 2% by 2024, which was the goal. So I guess the question is whether this is something that President Trump stressed himself very much, the need to spend more. He's particularly hard on, on Germany, which falls far short of these spending targets. But lately, he's more emphasized the fact that Europeans have been spending more, as you say. Do you think he's in his own mind chalking this up as a success for him? Well, I, I think it is a success, uh, meaning that after years of cutting defense uh, budgets, after years of cutting billions, uh, European allies and Canada are now adding billions. 
I know this is not easy because I've been Minister of Finance, I've been Prime Minister in Norway, and it's always hard to find money for defense. It's always, as most politicians would prefer to spend money on, on education, on, on health. Uh, and after the end of the Cold War, we all reduced defense spending. But when we reduce defense spending, when tensions are going down, we have to be able and willing to increase when tensions are going up as they do now. And we do that not to provoke a conflict, but to prevent the conflict. And part of the credibility of deterrence is, of course, Article 5, the pledge for mutual defense if one country is uh, attacked. It's an attack on all. And that article has been somewhat put into question in the Macron interview. He said it in the context of Turkey. Would NATO come to defend Turkey now if attacked, uh, given what's been happening in Syria and so on? And President Trump, too, in, a, in an interview last year in the context of Montenegro, said, would we want to start World War Three over, over Montenegro? So how credible is this vital Article 5 right now? Article 5 is the cornerstone of NATO, the whole idea that uh, we stand together, one for all and all for one. And uh, Article 5 is extremely important because as long as any potential adversary knows that uh, if one ally is attacked, then it will trigger the response from the whole alliance, from all allies, we prevent uh, any attack against uh, NATO. And perhaps the greatest success of NATO is that no NATO ally has been attacked since NATO was established. And we speak about European countries where the kind of normal situation was that we were at war. At least uh, we have hardly seen uh, a longer period of peace in Europe than uh, we have had since NATO was established. But isn't it deeply damaging when a leader, a prominent leader of NATO or leaders of NATO, publicly question whether this article is actually... Uh, something that can be depended on. But again, for me, the strongest expression of the commitment to Article 5 is not uh, the legal, as it's a legal thing, it's a treaty commitment, but the strongest expression of this commitment is the fact that we have more troops ready. We have, for the first time, combated the troops in the eastern part of the alliance. And then we have to also remember that the ultimate guarantee is uh, our nuclear deterrent and the fact that the U.S. has uh, nuclear weapons in Europe and we have the NATO nuclear deterrent where allies go together and provide that. So, so I'm, I'm absolutely certain that the Article 5 is ironclad and I'm expecting also that to be clearly uh, stated by heads of state and government when they meet in London in a couple of uh, weeks. So coming on to the London uh, summit, one of the things that you had agreed upon with foreign ministers on November the 20th was the extension of NATO's activity, a formal domain, the fifth domain, into uh, space. Why is that happening and why now? It reflects that NATO is constantly adapting, constantly modernizing, changing, because the world is changing. And uh, we recognize that space has become more and more important for our societies, uh, satellites. Uh, it's important for navigation, for communications, for intelligence gathering, for tracking missile launches, not to weaponize space, not to deploy weapons in space, uh, but to make sure that we have access to the space cap capabilities we need, both for the civilian society, uh, but also for uh, military operations, because it's impossible to... Uh, conduct military operations without uh, access to, for instance, uh, satellites for communications and sharing of data. So when cyberspace was added as the fourth domain, the question 
then arose, well, how does Article 5 get applied to cyber? When does a, a cyber attack become an Article 5 event? Is something similar going to have to be defined for actual space, real space, at the end of the day, it's for allies to decide when we trigger Article 5, and uh, and we will never give our uh, potential adversaries the advantage of, uh, as I say, drawing a specific uh, line uh, when we trigger Article 5. But if an ally is attacked, uh, then of course uh, they have uh, the right to, to consult with all the allies and eventually also uh, trigger Article 5 if we uh, deem the attack serious enough to, to trigger Article 5. Uh, one of the other new areas or newish areas that NATO leaders will be discussing is security threats from, from China. So can you tell us what you expect of a new NATO China policy will be? Of course, it's way out of area of NATO's traditional grounds of Europe. NATO has traditionally, for historic reasons, been focused on the Soviet Union and later on uh, Russia. And then we took part in the fight against terrorism, which we are still doing um, after 9-11. Uh, we are in Afghanistan and Iraq. But now we realize that the rise of China has more and more consequences uh, for our uh, security. There are also opportunities and uh, we are not going to establish China as a new adversary, but we just have to understand we need to analyze together the consequences, uh, both the opportunities and the challenges. Because the fact is that China has now the second largest defense budget. They are investing in new, very advanced capabilities. Recently, they displayed uh, a new intercontinental ballistic missile, of course, able to reach the whole of Europe uh, and United States, Canada. Advanced weapons, uh, hypersonic weapons, uh, glide vehicles, and other modern capabilities. It's not about moving NATO uh, into the South China uh, Sea, but it's about taking the consequences of that China is coming closer to us with weapon systems able to reach uh, Europe, North America, in cyberspace, and also and the fact that there are just more uh, Chinese presence in Africa, in Arctic, and investments in critical infrastructure in Europe. There seem to be big divisions between European countries in their approach to China. For example, you mentioned the infrastructure investments, participation in the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, China buying Greek ports, doing deals with Italy. Uh, and over technology, the technology infrastructure for 5G telecoms, for example, different European countries have different approaches to that. So can you see a greater effort through NATO to get a, a shared assessment of the strategic threat from, uh, from China and the strategic response? Yes, absolutely. And that's exactly why we have um, done this work, why we have now agreed a comprehensive uh, report addressing many of these challenges. And, and when it comes to infrastructure, uh, at our defense ministerial meeting a few weeks ago, we agreed updated uh, uh, so baseline requirements for uh, civilian infrastructure, for the resilience of uh, civilian infrastructure, also including telecommunications, including 5G. Uh, and that reflects that NATO is now strengthening and developing uh, our policies also when it comes to making sure that we have infrastructure which is resilient. And of course, even as you move into space and you consider China, the traditional uh, area hasn't gone away, the question of Russia. President Macron said that uh, we need to open a strategic dialogue without being naive and which will take time with Russia. Is this something he consulted you on? Well, NATO has dialogue with Russia, uh, and uh, one of the great achievements uh, we have been able to, to make together in NATO is that we, uh, we have 
agreed on a common approach to Russia, which is what we call the dual track approach, which is the Terence defense combined with dialogue. Uh, Russia is our biggest neighbor. Russia is there to stay. And dialogue is not a sign of weakness. Dialogue is actually a sign of strength that we are not afraid of sitting down, partly to try to strive for a better relationship with our biggest neighbor. But but even if we don't uh, succeed in, in, in improving the relationship with Russia, we need to manage a difficult relationship with more military exercises, more military presence, high tensions close to our borders. We need to avoid incidents, accidents uh, from happening. And if they happen, make sure that they don't spiral out of control and create really dangerous situations. Arms control is an important part of our dialogue with Russia. We regret the demise of the INF Treaty, which banned all intermediate-range weapons. But we need to continue to work for arms control. So dialogue with Russia is... Is it it time for a new new initiative, a new impetus in this? The NATO-Russia Council has has, has not been terribly active in recent times. Uh, Well, the NATO-Russia Council didn't meet for two years, from 2014 to 2016. But uh, now we have been able to uh, reactivate the NATO-Russia Council. We have meetings there. We have addressed everything from the INF Treaty, also the the treaty that banned all intermediate-range weapons, Ukraine uh, and many other issues. We have briefed on exercises, provided transparency on military posture and so on. Uh, Of course, there is a need for new initiatives uh, because we have seen that arms control is under severe pressure. So NATO has taken new initiatives, for instance, in uh, in Vienna, when it comes to something called the Vienna document, which is uh, exactly about transparency, predictability related to military activity in, in Europe. Uh, We support uh, ideas and proposals uh, to try to engage also China in arms control because they are developing more and more uh, advanced weapon systems. And there is an ongoing strategic discussion in NATO on how we can move the arms control uh, agenda uh, forward. And one very important NATO member, Turkey, has been developing a a particularly close relationship with uh, Russia, also militarily buying anti-aircraft system from Russia, which has been a a great concern, not least to the United States. Is there a a worry that you have that Turkey is drifting away from the alliance? So I have expressed my concern about the consequences of the Turkish uh, uh, decision to procure S-400 and the Russian uh, air defense uh, system. I welcome the fact that there is dialogue going on between um, the United States and Turkey uh, on alternative systems. I know also that France and Italy have been also offering something called SAMT, a European system, and hopefully that can lead uh, to something. Regardless of uh, how much progress we we may uh, make on addressing the issue of air defense, uh, the S-400, uh, I welcome the, the, the fact that Turkey is important for NATO. Uh, we can just look at the map. Turkey is the only NATO ally bordering Iraq and Syria. Uh, the progress we have made uh, in the fight against ISIS has been extremely, or had been very much dependent on infrastructure bases in uh, in Turkey. Uh, so Turkey is important in the fight against uh, terrorism. Turkey is also uh, contributing to many different NATO missions and operations. And we have the NATO mission in the Aegean Sea, where Turkey, uh, Greece, other NATO allies work together uh, to implement an agreement between Turkey and the European Union on migration. So Turkey is an important ally, despite the fact that uh, there are concerns about the S-400. Let me ask you one final question. I, I believe you're a keen cross-country skier, and for the centenary of the Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen winning the race to get to the South Pole. You retrace the last part of that journey. Uh, what can NATO leaders learn from Amundsen? 
good planning. The reason why he succeeded was extremely uh, good planning, and uh, that's the reason why he was the first man to reach the South uh, Pole. Also, I, I, uh, he went all the way with dogs and slates and on skis. I, I took a plane into the South Pole and then I walked a few kilometers. So it's a huge difference between me and Roald Amundsen. But that, that probably took a bit of planning too. Yeah, at least for my staff, they planned. That's the privilege of being prime minister. Jens Stoltenberg, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. And as always, we'd love to know what you think, less about the Antarctic than about NATO and what its future holds. Write to us at radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. We'd also like to get to know you, our listeners, better. Please go to economist.com forward slash pod survey to tell us more about yourself. I'm Daniel Franklin and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>